It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to bring in Maya Winkelstein right now, CEO of Open Road Alliance. It's a philanthropic organization in an area that we've been covering a little bit more lately and i just find absolutely fascinating impact investing maya thanks so much for joining us um talk to us first about the difference between impact investing and esg investing right um so esg environmental social governance criteria is really it's a set of standards right it's a criteria Impact investing, I think of it, is really more about an investment thesis or investment strategy. And a good way to think about it is to kind of bring it into the conceptual and just realize that every investment that ever has been made in the history of investing has actually had an impact on the world. It could be environmental, could be social, and that impact could be negative, positive, or neutral. Until recently, though, we just never bothered to notice or take into account in our investment decision-making whether that impact was positive, negative, or neutral, and what we as an investor wanted to get out of it. So ESG, I think of it, if you think about it on that continuum of negative to positive impact, ESG is really a set of criteria that helps us avoid doing harm, that makes sure that the impacts of our investment are not on the negative side. Impact investing, however, is really a strategy that says, I don't just want to avoid harm. I really want to pursue an investment strategy that is proactively and intentionally prioritizing being on the positive end of that spectrum. Maya, can you give us an example of maybe uh, a type or an actual investment that you guys made that uh, has been successful for you? Yes. Um, so Open Road Alliance, the primary area of impact investing that we're engaged in is in debt. So we run a short-term bridge loan fund, primarily supporting businesses in the emerging, in emerging markets. Um, that's really designed to help businesses that are at an inflection point of growth and scale. And for us, it, we support a variety of impact areas. Um, so everything from climate change to healthcare care um, to gender, gender equity and human rights. Um, and an example of somebody that, that we help with our investment thesis around this um, would be in the renewable energy space, where you know, renewable energy, particularly in emerging markets, is, of course, growing and growing and growing, but they're still subject to the same market inefficiencies um, as the rest of the market. So, for example, we supported Husk Power um, when they were entering their series raise, and it was a... Um, at the time, the largest series raised for a renewable energy company 
in East Africa. It was $20 million raise, um, but they needed $500,000 in order to get to close. Um, and we provided that $500,000 loan. They got to close. They were able to seize massive expansion. Um, and, of course, the impact in a company like that is baked in um, just given the nature of what they're doing. And so how, how do you actually define success for you? Is it returns or is it, uh, you know, change? It's both. It's both. So we actually think about certainly the financial terms. You know, we're a lender and we are you know, a lender that wants to have the same financial baseline as other lenders. We want to need to break even. We need to meet our IRR, um, our open road impact fund. We do service uh, third party assets. We have assets under management. So we certainly have to meet all of those fiduciary responsibilities. But what's different about our investors is, of course, they want to go above and beyond that. They're not looking for maximum profits. They are looking for maximum impact in the areas that where they're investing. So that really is where we're going to uh, where we go to, to look for in terms of, you know, what is what is happening because of this investment? How many kilowatts of clean energy are coming online? How many more customers who didn't have access to electricity previously now have access to electricity because of this investment? So, my kind of going forward, give us a sense of where you think the opportunities are going to be for impact investing. Where you, what areas are you guys going to be looking at? We're going to be looking in a lot of areas. I, I do think, you know, again, climate is just a really obvious one and a really big one. Um, and, but I have to say, you know, my sense is really the, the future, when people ask about the future of impact investing, my first sense is the future of impact investing isn't impact investing, it's just investing. Because we have learned over the, the years, and especially in these past couple of years, between COVID and inequity and everything that has been happening in our country and around the world, that, you know, this traditional system of making investments without being aware of the impact that they're having hasn't really worked out for us. And, you know, you only have to look to, of course, Business Roundtable and uh, BlackRock and, you know, other actors in the main field. The convergence of impact and investing, it's on a collision course. And I don't think that in 10 years' time, there's actually going to be any distinction between what today we're calling impact investing and what is called investing. It's just all going to be the same thing. Well, I, you know, I was talking with Aleem Remtula from Developing World Markets recently, and I was thinking the distinction I, I would make isn't between impact investing and ESG, but really between impact investing and charity. I, I would rather do impact investing if I can make a difference in someone's live, lives and um, uh, then just donate money. It makes more sense. Absolutely. And if you're looking at it from the charity and the perspective, there is a very clear economic argument to be made. Right. A grant right. charity, it's a guaranteed loss, a guaranteed zero percent return. Impact investing from an impact traditional charity perspective has huge leverage built right. in because you automatically have that opportunity to yep. recycle the same capital for more impact. Hey, Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Maya Winkelstein, CEO of Open Road Alliance. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now let's bring in Jason Pride. He is Chief Investment Officer of Private Wealth over at Glenmead. They have $40 billion, a little more than $40 billion of assets under management out of Philadelphia. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be on with you guys. Let's talk about um, the peak growth narrative. And it's one that it seems like market participants are convinced about and nonetheless um, they continue for the most part to bid up stocks okay right now we're down a little bit but we um, continue to bump up against new record highs what's your view so we might have a little bit of an opinion here we think that the peak growth narrative is look it's it's in one way it's a fact uh, but in the other way it actually doesn't matter that much to investors and here's the reason why peak growth comes about from, from a realization or a reality that when you're growing up of a low base uh, that, a, that occurred during a previous recession, your growth rate is going to hit levels that you just don't see during the regular portion of the cycle. You hit those peak growth levels, and then once you annualize past that low base, you actually back off from those levels. This happens every single time we are coming out of a recession. Uh, it is a very regular occurring thing, and something that actually historically doesn't matter to markets once you get past it. And the reason for that is once you settle back down from these these high growth rates coming off the low base, you settle into a sustainable growth rate that ends up being acceptable for investors. All of the past uh, recovery cycles that we've been through have seen peak growth. We've seen the markets move right past peak growth and realize that behind peak growth is an underlying base of growth that ends up being acceptable to them because it ends up being in the middle of an ongoing economic expansion. We don't expect this period to be any different than that. All right. Given that background, Jason, where are you folks at Glenmead? Are you positioning your equity portfolios more for kind of a reopening cyclical trade? Or are you, like a lot of folks, sticking with those big top line stories, whether it's an Apple or an Amazon or, or something along those lines? Look, I'd say it's actually a mix of those those two things. One thing is is we are not in the full force recovery at this point in time. We are one year past it. We are entering into the kind of like the ongoing expansion period. Having said that, there's a little bit more gas in the tank on on the recovery. Uh, there are portions of our market that are not fully back uh, to previous levels. Portions of the economy that are not fully back to previous levels. We continue to face the, the, the COVID pandemic a little bit, and that's holding back certain parts of the economy. So we think there's actually a little bit left in the reopening trade. So I would say on the whole, we're pretty balanced between the two aspects with maybe a little bit of a tilt, a very marginal tilt uh, towards the reopening trade because there's a little bit more left in the, uh, in, in the tank there for us as we go through the next, I would say, 6 to 12-month period. I think I would also underline that that uh, what seems to be coming out of Washington right now with the, uh, the upcoming um, uh, re- uh, infrastructure and reconciliation bill is likely going to be helpful for those more reopen-oriented traded industrials, cyclicals, domestically-oriented companies than the large global multinationals. It seems to be a little bit more punitive to the large global uh, multinationals on the tech side. 
How much fiscal help do you expect, Jason? How much fiscal help do you expect? Well, it's a, it's a pretty big bill. I think uh, we're looking at mainly from the tax side. Um, they they pared back some of their expectations on how they're going to be applying the, the global intangible income taxes and lifted the expectation for base statutory corporate tax rates. But still, the bigger multinational tech players are going to get harder hit harder than the more domestically oriented industrial players. And Look, it's an infrastructure spend, at least a good portion of it, $750 billion in infrastructure-oriented spending is going to be going through, and that should benefit um, cyclical industrials more than it does the big tech plays. How do you guys think about valuation here in this market, Jason? A lot of folks are saying, you know, even with the 10-year-old, 10-year yielding, you know, 1.3% roughly, boy, this is an expensive market. How concerned are you about that? And we, we tend to agree with that. Um, uh, even when you adjust for interest rates, short-term and long-term interest rates, uh, equities on a global basis are sitting like in the 80th percentile range of valuation, so on the high side. Domestic stocks are actually sitting above the 90th percentile with the growth-oriented plays um, sitting actually closer to like 95th to 97th percentile, so kind of nosebleed territory. 90 percentile and above tends to result in reduced returns over the next one, three, and five years. Uh, 80th percentile doesn't, though, which is pretty interesting to right. note. And what that what that conveys is actually that it's not really everything in the market is overvalued. It's actually more most concentrated in those large growth names. Right. When you look at large value, it's more reasonable. When you dip down to small, it's more reasonable. When you look abroad, international, it's more right. reasonable. You know, some of the better areas that we think are set out there actually set out in Asia, where, yep. look, they, they've been hit for reasons, but they are the most attractive areas out there in the global marketplace. All right, Jason, thank you so much uh, for your perspective and your comments. Jason Pride, CIO of Private Wealth for Glenmead. Uh, they are based in the town of brotherly love. That's Philadelphia, PA. Well, we always love to talk M&A deals, and there's a big one in the tech space, and it involves a company that has got a product called MailChimp. Into it is going to acquire email marketer <laughs> MailChimp for $12 billion. I, I don't know where to go with this, but let's start with uh, our leader in all things tech. That's Anurag Rana. He's a senior software and IT services analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Anurag, I know Intuit. Okay, application software company buying some more software. What is a MailChimp and why is it worth $12 billion? <laughs> Uh, it's a good one, um, Paul. If you look at it, everybody in the software space wants to be like Salesforce. They want to go buy, go out and buy other software assets so that they can sell in their current install base, and that's exactly what Intuit is doing. Uh, MailChimp is an email marketing software company. So, you know, if you want to, um, you know, send me spam every day about, you know, some kind of product that you have, you know, you use one of these software products. I wonder what the name comes from is it uh is there a history of monkeys delivering mail or <laughs> I, have no, <laughs> I have no idea but but hands down if you think about it right now how are people reaching out to you nobody's mailing you pamphlets and trying to get you to buy some stuff if you have a large install base of customers that already use your product this is the best way for you to you know sell into another thing that they will buy from you and keep on increasing your recurring revenue from that customer base. And everybody wants to target the SMB market right now. 
So, Matt, I don't know if you know this, but whenever I see an M&A trade go across the Bloomberg terminal, the first thing I do is hit M&A go. And then I go to look at the advisors, what investment banks are working on this deal. And for the seller here, for MailChimp, Frank Quattrone and Catalyst still doing big, big deals in tech. Uh, Just one of the all-time greats in technology investment banking. Anurag, so what's really, you know, talk to us about Intuit here. Here's a company that got $150 billion market cap. Most people, including me, don't really know much about it. Talk to us about this company and kind of where they're growing. Uh, what, what's behind this company? So if you look at it, I mean, they are the, the you know, everything tax, turbo tax, and then they, that's really their bread and butter. But just like it is for any other, you know, large install-based software company, you know, whether that's Adobe, whether that's Salesforce, whether that's Intuit for now, you have to figure out how can I sell another product to my customer base? And that really is the game here. You know, a value investor would have said, why don't you just go out and buy your stock every, you know, every, every year and use the free cash flow for that. But Salesforce has shown that buying a lot more products does help in the long run. It helps in customer retention. Uh, your churn rate goes down, and then you can you know, increase prices when you bundle these things. And that's what uh, the CEO is doing. Uh, they bought a company called Credit Karma um, a little while ago or $7 billion, and this is, you know, in the same string of acquisitions. This is the second big one. All right, so what's what's next then, I guess? is, is I, they're, Are they looking for pretty much anything that they can fit into? And um, is finance just super easy right now? I think finance is super easy right now. And for all of these software companies, what they are looking at is what is their niche and market? And for Intuit, it is the SMB market. So whenever you see an economy... Uh, it, you know, rebound, you see the number of small businesses go up. And this is where the sweet spot is for Intuit. They want to be able to not just do the tax software for these companies, they want to sell additional products. So now whether this is, you know, let's say right now they're using email marketing software, you know, potentially they could think about something in advertising, something in the front office, customer service, something in the back office, such as finance. So they can, they can figure out many areas where a small and medium business would need more software products. You know, Matt, I, I just pump, put up the uh, comp chart, which is something you like to do for these names. Look at the last yeah. five years. Boy, Intuit's had a f- compounded annual return of about 40% a year versus the S&P of 18%. So it's up another 50% this year. So an, an, another great software story. That's all Anur- Anurag has. All the companies he follows all are up like 50% a year every year. Well, it's, uh, it's just a fascinating time for these companies. And um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of those days when Frank Quatron was the prince of Silicon Valley. Yep. You know, I mean, for a lot of our a lot of bankers today probably are too young to remember Frank Quatron. Um, he got embroiled in some real issues. Justice. But he issues. was all vindicated. <laughs> well, at the end, yeah, everything yes. was reversed. Uh huh. Okay, yep. so definitely uh, a fascinating, a fascinating story of Frank and of Intuit and Mailchimp. Anurag Rana, thanks so much for joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor Q and B. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. 
Apple's holding a product event today, 1 p.m. Wall Street time. Maybe an iPhone 13 upgrade, maybe a watch upgrade. So my question is, do I need to run over to the Apple store on Fifth Avenue and upgrade all my Apple stuff? Joining us is Anand Srinivasan, senior semiconductor and hardware analyst. He covers uh, Apple for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Anand, what's is there a big deal today, or is this just kind of you know some upgrades on the edges? Look, it's going to be evolutionary, right? So we've said this: there are a billion iPhone um, users in the install base, and the fact that we upgrade about. 20 to 25 percent of them every single year is phenomenal so what you want to do is produce a product that is evolutionary that drives that refresh rate up what we saw with the revolution last um, with the iPhone 12 was the 5g move and we expect the momentum to continue we think we're not um, we're nowhere near done yet with the super cycle so this is a this is an evolutionary story so the answer to your question is yeah, it would be nice if you went out and upgraded everything uh, as quickly as possible. But um, we're expecting, you know, 51 million units in calendar quarter three and about 89 million units to be sold in calendar quarter four. But in the grand scheme of things, this is an evolutionary upgrade. More 5G, more momentum, continuation of themes. But the watch is going to be revolutionary, isn't it? Or at least... <laughs> The shape is going to be different. It's bigger. Um, it should be capable of more. Does it tell time? <laughs> Look, um, you know, you you bring up a good point, Matt Miller, is that you brought up the connectivity portion, the halo effect. You know, iPhone drives watch, iPhone drives Mac, Mac drives iPhone, everything drives services, right? So the connectivity um, or the, uh, the connectivity between all of these products within the closed, the walled garden, if you may, is, is the holy grail for Apple. To the extent that I can get you upgraded on the watch, which hasn't seen that much of an upgrade um, in, in recent times, is, is, a, is a great advancement. The fact that services, despite the epic drama, we can make that stickier, it's a high margin business, we can expand that. That's, if I can do that consistently, if I'm Apple, every single time, a, a single product every year or uh, every other year in some cases, and increase the attach rate, that's what drives iPhone shipments and services growth. You made a second point, which was interesting, which um, not many people are talking about, is the gating factor is supply constraints, right? Um, and the chip shortage is here to stay, unfortunately, and the visibility of that through be, uh, maybe through first half 22. Uh, so depending on how strong demand is and where demand comes from and what other products are um, have high demand, there could be uh, repercussions even to companies like Apple, um, which saw some spillover into um, iPhone and 3Q. All right, so Anand, I'm trying to get Tom Keen to upgrade to 5G. I'm telling him he can download his movies and his, his music much faster. Is 5G really a super cycle driver? I'm just not feeling it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that, um, uh, unlike, remember the 2G to 3G conversion was voice to data, right? 3G to 4G was... Um, huge upgrades from a speed perspective from uh, in the 4G in the uh, in the data landscape. 4G to 5G is yes about uh, more speed, but also about a variety of more connections. It's just not about the handset anymore. Uh, it's about handsets. It's about autos. It's about industrial IoT. But the services associated with 
all of those new expansive products and product categories, we're, we're not there yet. Okay, so this is going to be a long journey and it's come first to the consumer and at the margin, we're going to be able to see faster speeds. We are not there with um, the true millimeter wave implementation of 5G either. So all of this is going to take time. Um, we're not seeing any uh, dramatic ARPU increases. So you're going to download your movies faster. You're going to be able to stream when you're on the train in New Jersey Transit. That's the answer, Paul. By the way, I remember hearing all this about 3G as well. And and now when I see 3G on my phone, it's like a nightmare scenario because yeah. it doesn't doesn't work anymore. Yeah. We're, we're a spoiled bunch. I can tell you that, you know, the, even 4G might seem slow compared to a year from now with 5G. So bottom line, Anand, I want to go out and get myself a new iPhone. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, I want to go and get the new watch, the 7 Series 7 watch. Am I going to be able to do that next week? Um, it, it, particularly on the high end, I think you will be able to. Um, one of the things that we have been consistently saying in the last year is that the shipments of uh, Apple, particularly the iPhone, are going to skew towards the higher end. All of the camera advancements and the um, uh, lens en enhancements and the screen enhancements are going to drive um, the uh, performance needs and the storage needs of the iPhone um, much, much higher. And as a result, you know, that $700 iPhone is not going to cut it for you, Matt, particularly with the pretty pictures of cars that you take. So yeah. it's gonna, you're going to move towards a high end and you're going to shell out, you know, 1200 bucks. Well, I actually pay a massive monthly fee in order to get a free, the free phone of my choice every year. There you go. So you're already so, on a good upgrade cadence. Yes, exactly. And I should have upgraded in April, but I knew if I just wait a little bit longer, just a couple more months, I keep telling myself, a couple more months, I can get the 13. Anand, thanks so much for joining us. Anand Srinivasan there from Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.